Let me read for us from Psalm 5. To the choir master, for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In recent weeks, we've been, we've been looking at the first five psalms. And what we've noticed so far is that essentially, the psalms lead us into a relationship with God. And a couple weeks ago in Psalm 3, we learned that prayer emerges out of our experiences whether good or bad. And we saw that prayer is a gift to be used at any point in your life, no matter where you are, what you're doing, or how you're feeling. But the challenge is that prayer does not come naturally. It's profoundly intimate. It's honest. It's realistic. It's vulnerable. It's needy. And it's even tiring. It does, this is a language that the Psalms teach us is counterintuitive. It's something we actually grow out of at a very young age. It's a language of intimacy, of vulnerability, and the Psalms help us recover that. In the middle of Psalm 3, we saw how prayer connects us with God's rhythm, His rhythm that's been in play since the beginning of creation. It's the rhythm of God creating order and beauty out of chaos. There's a rhythm of there was evening and then there was morning. And David in Psalm 3 connects that rhythm with our lying down, our going to sleep, and our waking again in the the morning. And then Psalm 3 and 4 build on that rhythm. In Psalm 4... We, we find a morning prayer. And in Psalm 5, I'm sorry, in Psalm 4 is an evening prayer. In Psalm 5 is a morning prayer. In Psalm 4 we learned 
how to end the day well. And in Psalm 5 this week, we learn how to begin the day well. And as Psalm 4 took us through the journey of the day, the struggles and the disappointments that we experience and took us to a path to peace and rest, Psalm 5 gives us direction for how to start our day and how to navigate the realities of life as we encounter them throughout the day. So what I want to do with you is I want to look at Psalm 5 to to learn how to prepare for the day. I want us to see what we need to discern in the midst of the day, what we need to see in the midst of it, and then where we find help to navigate the day. So first, let's look at preparing for action or how to prepare for the day in verses 1 through 3. But before we, we dive into that, I want you to think with me for a moment about when, what you think about how you feel when you wake up in the morning. I think perhaps the, most, the two most common ways that we begin the day is one of these two. It's one of feeling proud or feeling insecure. It's waking up and thinking, I can do it or I can't do it. And my guess is that for many of us, we aren't even aware of how we begin the day. We just get up and start doing. We're not even aware of how we're doing, how your soul is doing. Where is the pride? Where is the insecurity? But my guess is if you thought about it, and I hope you will tomorrow morning and this week, you will ask yourself, how am I beginning this day? Am I beginning this day with a sense of pride? I think I can do this day. Or a sense of terror. I don't know if I can make it. Those may seem really, really different. But what I want you to see is whether you wake up feeling like, I I think I've got it covered today. Or you wake up feeling like, I don't know if I'm going to make it. They actually have a common denominator. Because both of those reactions to the start of your day are focused on and rooted in your performance. How you think you're going to do or not do. I think most of us probably begin the day that way. Partly because nothing's really happened yet. There's a lot yet to do. And frankly, a lot of it feels like it's on you to make it happen. So your performance is front and center. But David has something for us here in this psalm. He wants to move you off of focusing on your performance. Whether you think you're ready or not ready. And he wants to show us a third way for beginning our day. Notice how David begins the day in a posture of total dependence. Four times in verses 1 and 2, David asks God to pay attention to him. He says, give ear, consider, give attention, for to you do I pray. This is a person who's beginning the day, pleading with God to pay attention, to intervene, to hear him out. It's as if David is saying to God, please sort me out. Please bring order out of the chaos of my soul. The reality is Psalm 4 ends with this 
almost blissful picture of peace and rest. But you and I both know that there are many nights that don't go that way. You don't sleep well. You're up many hours of the evening. There's not peace. There's not rest. And you wake up and you feel tired even though you've been horizontal for many hours. I venture to guess that's how David felt as he began the psalm. He's crying out to God, asking Him to sort Him out, to bring order to His soul. But where does David find the resources to either avoid pride and steer away from fear and insecurity? And he finds, I want to show you, how David shows us where to find humility and confidence. Which if you think about it for a moment, humility and confidence actually can go together, but they often don't. Here David, he finds confidence because he prays out of a deep sense of relationship. In verse 2 he says, My King and my God. My King and my God. This is out of a personal sense of belonging to his God. This is nothing other than what the Bible would call covenant language. It's based on God's prior commitment to David that he will never leave him, he never forsake him. There's confidence. He prays to a God that knows him and that he knows personally. But then there's humility. Notice David, if just you need to remember, David is the king, he's the king of Israel. He's God's anointed, his Messiah, his chosen leader to represent God and rule on behalf of his people. But notice what David says. He calls his God, he says, my king. What, what is, what's he saying when he says that? He's actually accepting that as a king, he is still a man under authority. He is a person in need. That he is dependent upon a greater king, a greater authority. There's humility. So here we find David showing us a third way, neither of pride or of fear, but rather humility and confidence. So when it comes to preparing for action, David illustrates it for us in verse 3. He says, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. If there was a key word or is a key word for this psalm, it is at the end of verse 3. It's the word watch. That the heartbeat of this psalm is practicing looking for God in the midst of your day and throughout your day. But what is it that we are, do, we are to do to get ready as we watch? Notice what he says here. He says he prepares a sacrifice for God. Now, if we were to translate this verse really um, strictly, the word that is here translated, prepare a sacrifice, really could be more, I think, accurately said, I arrange or I set in order for you. In other words, David is describing, looking at his life in all of its disarray, all of its chaos, all of its perhaps inner turmoil, and he's arranging it before God in prayer. This is a word that 
many times is used with reference to the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. And so it's appropriate that the writers, the translators actually do use the word, I prepare a sacrifice for you. Because that's exactly what a priest does when he prepares a sacrifice. He sets the altar in order. He arranges the sacrifice in order that God would make something beautiful out of it. Here's what one writer says about this, that preparing a sacrifice is putting into words the difficulties and delights that we foresee in the hours ahead. It's the assembling of fears and hope, apprehensions and anticipations. In other words, a sacrifice is the material means of assembling a life before God in order to let God work with it. On the altar, the sacrificial offering is changed into what is pleasing and acceptable to God. In the act of offering, we give up ownership and control and watch to see what God will do with it. Is that how your day starts? Of arranging your life, putting the pieces of it before the Lord and watching. See, preparing for action, getting ready for the day, It's the process of turning our gaze away from ourselves, whether it's a gaze of pride or a gaze of insecurity. Turning away from ourselves to God as we wait and watch for Him to work. That's how we prepare for action. And the reason we need a morning prayer like this is because we're vulnerable. vulnerable. We're vulnerable to the brokenness of our world. There's breakdown, there's injustice, there's greed, there's deception, there's manipulation. And it's very important as a morning prayer that we remember at the very beginning of the day what God thinks about those things. Which is why we need help to discern between good and evil. That's our second point. That we need help to discern good from evil. We're going to look at verses 4 and 6 and verses 9 to 10 together to do this. But notice, first of all, in verse 4, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Here, David, in no uncertain terms, in fact, it's black and white, that God makes no compromise or bargains with sin and wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with God. In other words, there is no way in which, either in our own lives or in the things that we experience, the ways that we are treated, that we should ever draw the conclusion that somehow God will make peace with evil. That somehow it's okay that evil exists alongside with righteousness, God's righteousness. They simply are mutually exclusive. And that is really important because if we're honest, so much of our lives look like they, they, they commingle all the time. And in fact, it often looks like evil and wickedness went out. And that God's hatred of evil and wickedness seems rather unimpressive, rather powerless. But David, at the very beginning here, wants to remind us that we need to discern between good and evil the way that God does. It's like oil and water. 
God will not permit evil to dwell with him. And these verses, they also show not only that they expose perhaps any temptation that we may face to pursue a path contrary to God's ways, they also show us that God cares about how we treat him, how we treat one another, and also shows us that God cares about how people treat you. You know, a lot of times, and this, I need to hold two things together here, but for many, many people, our, our knee-jerk reaction when we talk about God and, and, and Christianity in particular is what God cares most about is the way in which you wrong other people or the way in which you sin against God. We don't talk as much, I don't think, about, well, what do I do when I have been sinned against? Is there ever a sense in which you can be, as it were, a righteous sufferer? Someone who has been mistreated. And how do you call out to God? How do you talk to Him? Psalm 3 is a great example of that. This psalm is a good example of that. Psalm 4 is a great example. How do you handle evil and wickedness when you are the victim of it? You see, God cares about how we treat Him and one another. Now, especially if... if if reading verses like this where, where God's justice comes through very loudly, that can sometimes be very unsettling because it can sound either harsh or unfair. But let, let me try to help us with this a little bit. By, let me read you a quote from a writer reflecting on this that says, Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign intolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. You see, when when we read about God's hatred for evil and wickedness and sin... What we're reading about is a God who will not let that go on forever. You see, if our reaction to this is, well, I don't like that. That grates against my sensibilities. I like the idea that God is all loving. I'm just here to tell you, that's not the God you want. A God who does not care for the victims, care for the suffering, who is intent on ending evil and wickedness, Because he's simply a God of love. That's not really love. A God who is not angry at evil and wickedness doesn't really love his creation. You have to have the two together. But notice, not only does David tell us that there is no compromise between good and evil, between God and wickedness, he also teaches us about the character of evil and wickedness. And this is particularly the part I think this psalm is trying to teach us about. We need to learn to discern this in our own hearts, but also in our everyday, ordinary lives. And notice that the heartbeat of the wickedness that he's described here is all about speech. It's all about words. Seven different times in verses 4 to 6 and 9 to 10, David refers to some aspect of speech. 
He says, they are boasters, verse 5. They speak lies, verse 6. They are bloodthirsty and deceitful men, verse 6. There is no truth in their mouth, verse 9. They flatter with their tongue, verse 9. They follow their own counsels, verse 10. If you wanted to know what David has in view for a definition of evil and wickedness from this psalm, it is the power of words to wreak havoc on other people's lives and in your life. In fact, Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 says, it's out of the mouth the abundance of the heart speaks. Notice what David says here in verse 9. Their inmost self is destruction. That's another way of saying the very center of your being. Your heart. Their throat is an open grave. That's a very poetic way of saying when they open their mouth, you see down in the depths of who they really are and there's nothing but death there. The power of words to destroy, that's where it begins. Just think about in your own relationships, a biting word here, a condescending word there. It dehumanizes people. It wreaks havoc. Here we have a devastating picture of the human condition. And in fact, Paul quotes from verse 9 in Romans chapter 3. In a litany of verses pulled from the Psalms to describe the universal human condition of rebellion and sin against God. This is the character of of the evil and wickedness that we see here. Just think about this for a moment. When you, have you ever been deceived? Have you ever been taken advantage of? Have you ever been lied to? How does that feel? Why is this so awful? You feel angry. You feel cheated. And why is that? It's because you were cheated out of reality. You were sold a bill of goods. You were sold a half-truth. And in fact, this cancer, as it were, takes us back to the Garden of Eden. Because what does the serpent say to Adam and Eve? He says to Eve, well, did God really say? He sows a plausible untruth that takes root. And leads to complete destruction between God and His creation and His people. You see, we need to discern this. We need to discern it in our own lives. And we also need to be able to see it in our interactions every day. That this is as a morning prayer teaching you to be discerning. To understand as God does, what evil and wickedness looks like. But notice how David responds to this evil and wickedness in verse 10. Now, if you've ever been betrayed, our reaction is to take revenge, to take it in our own hands. And that's because we have been personally wrong. And there's something about that that's right. There is a 
almost like we talked about last week when the psalm says, be angry, but don't sin. We need to see things for how they really are. But notice how David responds in verse 10. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. And listen to this. Not because they wronged me. He says, for they have rebelled against you. How do you respond to the destruction of words leveled against you? That are persuasive enough that they lure you in and before you know, you're in a whole mess of trouble. How do you respond? Not with revenge, but with love for God. That's what's what's David is doing in verse 10. The motivation, the appeal he makes here for David's enemies to experience the reality and the consequence of their own deception is, is simply this, that they've rebelled against God. God's character, his, his integrity, His ways are the things that are at the heartbeat of David's cry that his enemies would fall by their own counsels. But even as we watch and wait for God to work, even as we, in the morning, look for help to discern between good and evil, that's simply not enough. You can get ready and you can become more aware and discerning of your own heart and the realities of life as you face them. But the reality is that people say and do terrible things. We say and do terrible things. And we need to know where to go to navigate the day. Where we can find grace, help, and refuge. And David shows us where he goes in verse 7 and 8 and where we need to end up in verse 11 and 12. In verse 7, where do we help find help to navigate the day? He says, I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. In other words, where we need to go at the beginning of the day is to worship. We, we need to go back to the basics of what it means to be in relationship with God. And David tells us in verse 7 when he says, it's through the abundance of your steadfast love. That's another way of saying, it's all a grace. It's only by grace that David enters into God's house, a relationship with God, communion with God. And this is really important because, again, remember how we tend to begin our day, either in pride or in fear. And David is saying, no, it must begin By remembering that you are a sinner saved by grace. And it's only by God's steadfast love, His freely given grace, that we can enter in to His house. And what happens when when we enter into His house? We find realignment for our souls. Look what he says. He says, I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. It's a directional thing. David is beginning his day with an orientation towards God. And he's remembering who is the king in his life. Who is the true sovereign? Who is it that we must fear more than anyone else? Because you see, who or what you fear most is what will be the supreme authority 
in your life, but also the supreme comfort in your life. So that's where we need to begin. We need to begin with worship in navigating the day. But then also, as we worship, notice where David goes next. He discovers that he has a God who will lead him. A God he needs to follow. In verse 8, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. If you want to jot down right next to this, a parallel passage to help with this is Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs 3, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. Where the Proverbs teach us, it says, Trust in the Lord. More than your own understanding. He says, talk to God about what you're going to do and why. Acknowledge the Lord in all your ways. Then he says, don't be too quick to think that you've got things figured out. You need to learn to be led. You need to learn to to follow. And as you do so, trust that God will go before you. That he will make your paths straight. Now, as we think about that, we're we're given this picture of life as a journey. There are a lot of times in the Bible where that metaphor gets picked up and gets built on, and one of them is in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, where we we read about Jesus. He's he's, He's described as the author and the perfecter of our faith. And it's this journey is like a race where he goes before you. And in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus, if the gospel tells you, when here we read about, Lord, lead me. It's not just a prayer that we hope that God intervenes and does things and leads us, but he actually gets personally involved in the person of Jesus Christ. He comes to earth and he leads us in order that our paths would be straight. But in order for our paths to become straight, His had to come to an end. His path was not straight. His path was chalked with suffering and deception and betrayal. He experienced the very evil and wickedness we read of in this psalm. There are two things you need to hear about that. If you have experienced or are experiencing the evil and the wickedness that you read of in the psalm, Jesus identifies with you. You are not alone in your suffering. But even more than that, Jesus came to lead us, to make our paths straight, so that the evil and the wickedness that you experience will not have the last word. And this is the hardest thing to say. No matter what you think or how you feel, because Jesus has died and He has risen from the dead. That means that sin and wickedness has been defeated. It will not have the last word. And this is really hard. And as a pastor to say this, I'm not denying our feelings or our emotions or our experience. But at the end of the day, the gospel, what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, has to trump how we feel. Because it's only in the cross of Jesus that you can find healing and hope 
for those feelings, those emotions, those experiences that have devastated you. Not only do we need Jesus to lead us, we also need to look for his blessing. And we need to do that together. Look in verse 11 and 12. He says, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. And spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. Last week at the end of Psalm 4, we noted David commenting and and praising God and saying, you have put more joy in my heart than any earthly good I could ever receive. And Psalm 5 ends with singing for joy. That that joy begins to take root as you begin your day getting ready. As you by grace ask God to help you to discern the realities of the life that, that you live. And as you begin with the basics of the gospel again in order to navigate your day. You know, we've, the last couple of weeks we've talked a lot, or I've said many times, about this rhythm of evening and morning. And how that anchors us in God's work. It's an echo of creation. But I also want to introduce another rhythm, another pattern, that's as important. Not only did God bring order out of chaos in making all that he's made. But in the death and resurrection of Jesus, there's another pattern. There's life out of death. You see, we don't just need God to make our lives work right. We need salvation. We need to be rescued. We need to be caught up into this redemptive work of God that brings life out of death. Therefore, what I want you to think about this week, as you wake up, I want you to think about this prayer. I want you to think about how do you feel when you wake up? Do you feel proud? Like, I can handle it. I can do it. Or do you feel fearful and insecure? You You don't think you can. Come back to this prayer and ask God to give you the humility and the confidence that only Jesus can give you. The confidence that by faith in Christ you are fully loved and accepted by Him. But also the humility that you're a sinner saved by grace, not because of anything you've done. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you care about the ins and the outs of our days. That you care about the ways in which we wake up and the ways in which we go to bed. And everything in between. And I pray, Father, that you would work these psalms, this rhythm of evening and morning, of your power to bring order out of chaos, life out of death, through Jesus. Father, we ask that you would do that in our personal lives and in our community of faith here at Red Mountain Church. Father, we pray that you would continue to be with us as we worship this evening for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.